Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. When Stott speaks, he has a voice that is friendly, courteous, and natural. It is humble and self-critical, but also confident, joyful, and optimistic. Stott's mission is to pierce through all the encrustation and share direct contact with Jesus. Today, John Stott presents a sermon on Unwrapping Christmas. Unwrapping Christmas, as you probably know, is the title that has been given to this mini-series of three sermons, of which tonight's is the last. Unwrapping Christmas is one of those ingenious titles in which Richard Buse excels because of its double entendre. I've been uh, wondering myself what it means. And I expect the previous uh, preachers in the series have wondered too. Because on the one hand, we do need to unwrap Christmas. We need to unwrap it from its trivialization, its commercialization, its secularization, its paganization, and every other from which Christmas suffers and which tends to corrupt it and spoil it. We need to unwrap Christmas in such a way as to recover its true meaning of dignity and to reinstate it as the great and glorious celebration that it is. But on the other hand, the title hints at the excitement that all of his experience when the time comes on Christmas Day to unwrap our presents. The family gathers round the Christmas tree. Dad is probably responsible for doing the distribution. But it's rather fun to be an aged uncle or aunt and watch the game from the touchline because children tend to show very little respect for the the wrapping, however pretty it may happen to be. With one almighty wrench, they tear it off in order to get at what really matters underneath. And once the gift is exposed, with the wrapping removed, It's amazing the rapidity with which they decide whether they like it or not. (laughs) And the real test is whether they come back to it to check it out and whether they're still enjoying it a few weeks later. That's the title I've been given under Unwrapping Christmas. The title is Enjoying the Gift. I don't think it's altogether fanciful to imagine that God stands by watching us while we unwrap his gift at Christmas. I don't think it's fanciful to imagine that God is concerned to see whether we enjoy the gift or not. Oh, what a gift 
What a wonderful gift we sing. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We've just heard as a kind of text a moment ago. So the question I want to ask and try to answer is, is what is this gift of God at Christmas and are we enjoying it? The theme I want to develop is that God didn't actually give us a gift if you conceive it as something detached from and separate from himself. What God gave us at Christmas was not a gift. He gave us himself. Now, you and I know how very easy it is to give a gift to somebody not as a sacrament of love, not as an expression of love, but as a substitute for love. And I'm afraid there will be many gifts that are given this Christmas which are exactly that, substitutes for love. Some parents, don't they, try to convince their children that they love them by giving them hugely expensive gifts where just a kiss or a hug or time spent doing things together would be much more convincing of their love because then they will be giving themselves and not a substitute for their love. So I wonder if you'd be willing with me to explore that theme a little bit together tonight that God has actually given himself. That God is the gift that we are to enjoy. And if we are to enjoy the gift of Christmas, what that means is a personal enjoyment of God himself. Why, even using those words may come as a, an astonishing surprise to somebody here. You've never thought that it might be possible actually to enjoy the living God who gives himself to us at Christmas. Well, I want to illustrate it in a way that the New Testament does. I want to remind you of three little prepositions that are used in regard to God giving himself and begin to discover, as we often may, how much theology is concealed in prepositions. So the first is this. God gave himself, this is the one I suppose all of us would have guessed. It's not very original. I wonder if you're already working it out in your mind, the first preposition. God gave himself in order to be God with us. Emmanuel. So we think for a moment, you may like, uh, you may not, to turn to the text. I've got three separate texts for you tonight, and uh, I'll give you the text. If you want to follow it, you may, on the other hand, prefer simply to listen. It's a very familiar one in Matthew 1, verse 22, page 1 in the New Testament sections of the Bible. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now we ought to know the historical background to that Old Testament text that Matthew is quoting. It was a crisis in the national life of Judah. The breakaway kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Syria had entered into an alliance with one another and they were about to invade Judah and Jerusalem. And we read in Isaiah the heart of King Ahaz and of the people shook as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. It's a rather picturesque way of saying that the nation was thrown into a panic. And the nation of Judah, about to be invaded, you see, by these two other nations, the nation of Judah was saying to themselves, where is God now? Where is the God of the covenant? Where is the God who has said to us, behold, I am your God and you are my people? Has he abandoned the people to whom he has pledged himself? Has he left them in the lurch to defend themselves against these two powerful kingdoms? And in that situation of national panic, God sent the prophet Isaiah to meet King Ahaz and to bring him a word and a sign. And the word was this, calm down, don't be afraid. And the sign, a virgin. Now, the Hebrew word that is used there, you may know, doesn't literally mean a virgin. It means a young woman, but it's a very unusual word. It's used, I think, only seven times in the Old Testament. It isn't the common word that is used for a mother or for a married woman. It's a rather unusual word, so that it could mean a virgin, And that's why in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the Greek word virgin is used. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, because before he is old enough to tell right from wrong, the nation shall be delivered. Well, all that sounds very remote. It's a very particular historical context. But despite the particularity of the prophecy, Isaiah giving a message to King Ahaz in the 8th century BC, it was quickly seen to have a much wider application. And Isaiah continued to speak of a boy to be born And he continued to use the mysterious word, Emmanuel, God with us. He confidently prophesied that God's supernatural intervention would take place just when his people thought they had been abandoned. So, you see, it wasn't long before people realized that the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy would be in the coming of the Messiah, when God would supernaturally intervene in the history of humankind in the birth of a baby to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Well, sorry if that's bored you a little bit, but let's think what it means to us today. God 
with us. You know, I honestly believe it has revolutionary implications. It's very easy, I know, for preachers to use the word revolutionary, but it does have revolutionary implications. It could change your life. It doesn't mean that God paid a brief visit to planet Earth. It doesn't mean that he made a quick touchdown followed by an almost immediate blast off again. It, do, it doesn't refer to a little visit. It refers to an incarnation. It means that God actually entered our humanity by taking our human nature to himself once and for all and forever. He's never laid it aside. Seated at the right hand of God tonight is the man, Christ Jesus, glorified in, in his humanity. He actually entered into our human nature by incarnation. So he identified himself with the humanity that he had created. So that when we sinned, he didn't destroy us and determine to begin again. His plan was to redeem, to reclaim, to remake his creation until one day even our bodies are going to be remade and the universe is going to be remade and suffused with the glory of God. So the incarnation, God with us, declares that God has not abandoned the material order. God has not abandoned his creation. He has affirmed it by entering it with a view to redeeming it. How tremendous that is. God affirming the material order by entering it in Jesus Christ. I very much like a story that is sometimes told about Michael Ramsey, at one time uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, who is a very saintly, godly, eccentric or, if you like, a very godly saint, eccentric saint. I don't mind which order you put it in. Anyway, on one occasion he was sitting in the Athenaeum Club, of which archbishops are often members, and he was all on his own in the library when a friend of his came in and saw him sitting in the corner all by himself. But in spite of the fact that he was all alone, he was muttering to himself and nodding. His head was going up and down, muttering. So his friend thought he'd better find out what on earth the archbishop was doing and saying. So he crept over to find out. And he saw that he was muttering the word yes, 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 yes as he nodded. So his friend interrupted him, said, Michael, what on earth are you doing? I'm affirming the universe, said the archbishop. <laughs> well, his friend might have said to him, Archbishop, you'd better, because it's better, you know, to affirm the universe than it is to deny it. 
The universe is there. And the wonderful thing about the incarnation is that God affirmed it by entering it and becoming man and becoming one of us. All that and more is involved in the first preposition that God is with us in Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on. Secondly, God gave himself not only in order to be God with us, but in order to be God for us. I love that preposition for. There is an enormous amount of theology in that constructive, positive preposition for. Because there are so many people who think that everything is against them. There may be some of you, as you come to towards the end of a year, you're a little bit tempted to wallow in self-pity. <clears throat> Your health may have been against you. You may have suffered some pain and ill health. Your financial situation. You may have lost your job. It may be some of your friends and relatives are against you. You're tempted to say with Jacob, all these things are against me. And there's something even worse than that of which the Bible speaks. And that is the possibility that God himself should be against us. It's not surprising that on several occasions in the Old Testament, God is sent to be against the hostile and evil nations that surrounded Israel. For example, it's said of Assyria, city of blood, city of lies and plunder, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. That's in the little red book called Nahum. And then there is the city of Tyre, who took a sadistic pleasure in the downfall of Jerusalem. I am against you, O Tyre, says God in Ezekiel. Well, then there is Babylon. God says, see, I am against you, O arrogant one. Jeremiah 50, verse 31. So it's understandable that God might be against Assyria and Babylon and Tyre and the pagan nations around Israel, but it comes as a real shock when we hear God saying it about his own people. Because of the grievous injustices of which Jerusalem was guilty, God says in Jeremiah, I am against you, Jerusalem. And again, because of their idolatry, I myself am against you in Ezekiel. Have you ever thought of that, that God could be against you? This is the God of holiness. This is the God of the Bible who sets himself against evil, whatever form it takes, and wherever it rears its ugly head. This is the God who opposes, judges, refuses to condone evil, is utterly unwilling ever to come to terms with it because he is against it, implacably, 
and irrevocably against it. Now, friend, it's only when you begin to understand this againstness of God, the fact of God's being against us in the evil that we have embraced, when we realize that we have rebelled against him and that we deserve to hear his terrible, I am against you because of your evil, that it's almost unbelievable to hear instead that God is not only with us, he's actually for us. He's on our side, acting on our behalf, working for our salvation. What does that mean? In a word, it means the cross. The fundamental way in which God is for us is that he died for us. And nothing reveals more this God for us than the cross. Instead of allowing his wrath to explode against us, he diverted it against himself. In order that he might bear it instead of us, and so before us, instead of against us. And once you've been to the cross and received the forgiveness of God because of what he did for us there, you know we want to sing as we've been singing tonight and shout for joy. You know my text, don't you now? Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul goes on, he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who can bring any accusation against God's people? It is God who justifies, who declares us to be righteous in his sight. Of course, the devil will try to bring accusations against us because the devil is the accuser of the brethren, but he will never succeed because it is God who justifies. So who can condemn us? Who can bring any charge that will secure our condemnation? Nobody. Because Christ Jesus, who died for us, who has been raised from the dead, who has been exalted to the right hand of God, is interceding for us. Have you read Kafka's trial? I don't profess to understand really what it means. But it's about a man who is brought into a macabre situation in which he feels that everybody is against him. And the whole world and the whole of humanity are accusing him and seeking to condemn him. And I tell you that that experience could never be yours if you know Jesus Christ. Instead, you will be able to sing... Why, God is for me, and nobody can be against me. 
So when God gives himself, he gives himself to be with us, and then he gives himself to be for us. But there is a third thing I can't leave out, and that is that he gives himself to be in us. God's gift was not only that he should enter the material order, that he should enter the universe, instead of, as it were, sitting upon the circle of the earth outside it, not only that he should enter into our humanity and become one of us, it's not only that he should enter into our sin and into our guilt and into our death, so that he bore these things in our place on the cross, it is that he will enter into us, personally, individually, into our heart, into our personality, into our soul, into the deepest recesses of me and you, of our ego and our identity, and what it means for us to be us. And he want to end, wants to enter right into the heart of who and what we are in order to live there. That's what Jesus said. Jesus drew a distinction between the preposition with and the preposition in. It's my third text, John fourteen seventeen. You know him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He dwells with you in the person of Jesus, but there's something better to come. He dwells with you. He shall be in you. And that's breathtaking. Of course, it would have been wonderful to be with Jesus and for Jesus to be with us. Probably you have looked, as I have done, with envy upon the twelve. If only I had been one of them. Wouldn't it have been marvelous to have been with Jesus, to have heard the music of his voice and seen the radiance of his smile? Would it not have been wonderful to watch him heal the sick, touch the leper, raise the dead, feed the hungry? Would it not have been wonderful to have touched him as the woman touched the hem of his garment or been touched by him as when he touched the little children that he invited to come to him? Yes, you've envied the twelve. So have I. And although it's understandable It's mistaken. There's something even better than to have Jesus with us, and that is to have Jesus in us by his Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is to universalize Jesus. So that you see, when he was in Palestine with them, if he was in Galilee and they were in Jerusalem, or he was in Jerusalem and they were in Galilee, they were separated. But we're never separated from him now. The Holy Spirit has universalized Jesus. Wherever his people are, there is Jesus. 
by his Spirit within them. And the Holy Spirit has not only universalized Jesus, he's internalized Jesus. So that by his Spirit, Jesus makes our heart his palace and his royal throne, coming to dwell within the center of our being. He gets to work within us, subduing our wayward and wild passions and transforming us in his own, into his own image and likeness. Well, let me conclude. What we've tried to reflect on together is three little prepositions of the English language. God with us, God for us, God in us. Three prepositions that relate, however, to three events. His birth, by which he was with us. His death, by which he was for us. His ascension gift of the Holy Spirit, by which he's in us. Which relate again to three doctrines. The incarnation, the atonement, and Pentecost. And which in their turn relate to the three persons of the Trinity. Because God with us is the Father affirming his own creation. And God for us is the Son dying for our sins in our place. And God in us is the Holy Spirit indwelling and sanctifying us within So the gift is the giver. God did not give us a gift. He does not give us a gift detached from himself. He does not say, there you are, there is salvation. Enjoy it. He doesn't say, there you are, there is eternal life. Get on with it. He doesn't give us a gift detached from the giver. He gives himself to us to be with us and for us and in us. So the way to enjoy the gift is to enjoy the giver. I want to emphasize that as I close. Dear friend, I don't know you. I know some of you. Many of you are strangers. I don't know what your need is. But I want to say this. Are you lonely then God can be with you to comfort you in your loneliness. Are you guilty? Then God can be for you. Even as your conscience is against you, God is for you in Jesus Christ who died for you. You dirty, unclean, then God can be in you to change you, to make you clean and pure within. So I I want to give you this little Christmas soliloquy. I'm going to say it to myself many times this week, and I want to urge you to say it to yourselves too. God is with me. God is for me. God is in me. In Christ by his Spirit. So thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of himself. Let us pray.
We'll spend a moment in silent reflection. God with us. God for us. God in us. An indescribable gift. Let's thank him for it. Let's receive it, receiving him. Let's determine to enjoy the gift by enjoying the giver. A moment of silence. Heavenly Father, we just simply want to say thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you that you gave yourself and that you give yourself to us today through your Son, by your Spirit, in order to be with us, for us, in us, in order to be all we need. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for your indescribable gift. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.